Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Old Testament lesson begins by reporting that the Israelites traveled from Mount Hor down to the Red Sea to go around the country or the land of Edom. The people of Israel by this point had already wandered in the wilderness for 39 years. I'm sure you remember how many years they sojourned. It was 40 years, so that means that time of wandering was nearing its end. Here they are in camps south of the Promised Land, and they needed to travel eastward to travel to the southeast side of the Dead Sea and then travel on northward so that they could cross the Jordan River uh, from the east and enter the Promised Land going west. But there was one problem, and that is the nation of Edom was in their way. Now, you would think that this would not be a problem since the Edomites were the closest relatives to the Israelites. You see, if we back up in time several centuries, Isaac and Rebekah had two sons, Jacob and Esau. You may recall that Jacob was later given the name Israel, and so his descendants are known as the Israelites. And Esau's descendants became known as the Edomites. Jacob and Esau were born right around 2007 B.C. Some scholars say 2006, some say 2008. Anyway, today's Old Testament lesson takes place in 1407 B.C., so we're talking about 600 years later after Jacob and Esau were born. This does make the Israelites distant relatives to the Edomites, but they are very distant relatives. Imagine tracing your own genealogy back 600 years, finding a brother to one of your ancestors who lived 600 years ago, and tracing that brother's descendants all the way down to somebody living today, that's how you would be related, like the Edomites and the Israelites are related, very distant. But yet they recognized each other as kin, as brothers. So Moses sent messengers to the Edomites, and Moses very kindly asked if they could pass through the land of Edom to get into the promised land. The messengers said to the king of Edom, this is reported in Numbers 20, right be the chapter before our Old Testament reading. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt and we lived in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. You would think that the Edomites would have complied. 
to this request, that they would have been happy to let their kin go through. After all, the king's highway, as was noted in this reading, went right through their territory. This was a well-traveled trading route that was east of the Jordan River and east of the Dead Sea. It connected Syria to the north down to the Red Sea in the south, and it provided a passageway for people to engage in trade with the Egyptians. And so while a number of mighty men had passed through the Edomite land, they never had a people as numerous into the millions as the Israelites who were desiring to pass through. So the Edomites refused passage. The Israelites had to go around Edom. They have to now travel from being on the southern edge of the promised land back down south to the Red Sea, east a little, and then north to go east of the Dead Sea and then uh, up by the Jordan River to enter the promised land and bypass Edom. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the Israelites are getting a little impatient along the way. It's a recurring theme. But would you be any better if you had been in the wilderness the last 39 years and you knew that we were, you were ever so close to the promised land and now forced to turn away from it and travel in the wrong direction? So because they are impatient, they grumble and complain. They speak against Moses. They speak against God. They say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to the die in the wilderness. There's no food, which of course is wrong. There's no water. God had been supplying them with water. And we load this worthless manna, the worthless food that they were given that gave them sustenance throughout their 40 years in the wilderness. We do have to recognize, though, that their grumbling against God and against Moses was a prayer. Prayer is speaking to God in words and thoughts. But their prayer was not a godly prayer. They did not pray with charity, accepting the good and gracious will of God. Nor was their prayer a godly prayer of lament. It echoes lament in which they are asking God, why are they dealing with these things? But it doesn't quite match the laments that are found in the Bible. There is, after all, a place for lament. Sometimes when we bring our lamentations before the Lord or before our pastor or our brother and sister in Christ, we say, well, I shouldn't be complaining but we should sometimes recognize that we do have, there is a place for laments. You see, the Bible contains a prayer book known as the Psalter, the Psalms. There are 150 Psalms and about a third of them may be considered Psalms of lament. Yes, those laments are often filled with complaints. But when they are done, they are done with faith in our Savior Christ and trust that God will bring us through our trials and tribulations. 
After all, Christ did say, be of good cheer, after telling the disciples they will face tribulation, because he has overcome the world. <clears throat> Dr. Martin Luther learned all the Psalms by heart. When he was a monk, they prayed them continually. And so he wrote much about the Psalms. Concordia Publishing House has printed a few books, like Praying the Psalms with Luther, books that give introductions to the Psalms, connections that Luther makes with the catechism in the Psalms. Some excellent books. Permit me to read to you a few sentences by Martin Luther on the Psalms of Lament and Psalms of Praise and Joy. Luther had written, What is the greatest thing in the Psalter but this earnest speaking amid these stormy winds of every kind? Where does one find finer words of joy than in the Psalms of Praise and Thanksgiving? There you look into the hearts of all the saints, as into fair and pleasant gardens, yes, as into heaven itself. There you see what fine and pleasant flowers of the heart spring up from all sorts of fair and happy thoughts toward God because of his blessings. So that, of course, is addressing the psalms of joy and praise. Luther continues, On the other hand, where do you find deeper, more sorrowful, more pitiful words of sadness than in the psalms of lamentation? There again you look into the hearts of all the saints as into death, yes, as into hell itself. How gloomy and dark it is there with all kinds of troubled forebodings about the wrath of God. So too, when they speak of fear and hope, they use such words that no painter could so depict for you to fear or hope, and no Cicero or other orator so portray them. And that they speak these words to God and with God, this, I repeat, is the best thing of all. This gives the words double earnestness and life. I encourage you, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, to supplement your prayer life with praying the Psalms if you are not already doing so. It's not too hard to do so. You could simply start with Psalm 1 and pray one psalm each day, one day after the next, one psalm after the next. If for whatever reason you miss a day, you could read two psalms or you could just pick up where you left off and read one psalm. Another way to do it is to pray the recommended psalm that you might see in Portals of Prayer. Another way to pray the Psalms is you could pull out your good old-fashioned red, the Lutheran hymnal, the TLH, turn to the charts on page 164 and following, not these hymnals, but again in TLH, because there are charts for reading the Psalms. One, you can pray through the Psalms in just a month. In other charts, there's Psalms for, that match the church year different psalms to pray during this week. There are another, there's another chart for praying the psalms in various occasions. It is an excellent resource. Remember, if you have an aversion to 
praying the Psalms because of perhaps some difficulty or hard to understand, remember what the Scriptures say about the Scriptures, including the Psalter. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This includes the Psalms which God has given for us to pray. Anyway, the Israelites, they grumbled, and God responded to their prayer. He responded to their ingratitude, perhaps in a fitting manner, because they didn't pray and trust that God would deliver them, but instead they just simply complained and passed the blame. God's response was sending fiery serpents which bit the Israelites and now people are dying from the, the venom of these snakes. But what is the result of that? People might say that wasn't nice of God, but it actually had a good effect. It caused the grumbling Israelites to recognize their error and to repent they pled guilty of their sin. They acknowledged that they were wrong in making this complaint, that they had forgotten that they only had to go around the region of Edom before entering into the promised land. And so they begged the Lord that he would take the serpents away from them. So this affliction, which the Israelites had faced, resulted in repentance and trust in God. May God continue to use all things for our good, that we may cling to Christ in faith and not put our trust in things of the world, and that when we face affliction, we recognize that God is using these things for our benefit. And one of the things that happens in the face of our affliction is we begin to turn to the Lord in prayer. And God always answers prayer. He always hears the prayers of all Christians who calls out to, to him. His answer may be no. His answer may be delayed. He may answer our prayers according to our desires. But we do recognize that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. And so if he chooses to answer our prayers in a way inconsistent with our own prayer, we recognize that that is right for us, and we give God the glory. We give our praises to him. Why would we pray? Of course, he instructs us to pray. He commands us to pray, and he promises to hear us. We pray because we trust in him. It should be clear that those who do not trust in our Savior would not bother to pray to him. The way God answered the prayers of the Israelites who are dying from these snake bites is quite interesting. Instead of miraculously eliminating these venomous creatures, God instructed Moses to make this bronze serpent and set it on a pole so that if someone is bit by a snake, that person looks at the bronze serpent that is lifted up on that pole, and that person will be healed. He will live. Clearly not what they were expecting. God could have miraculously gotten rid of all those snakes, but he chose a different way. 
This was not a graven image for them to worship, which was obviously forbidden in the first commandment. Instead, this bronze serpent on the pole was the means by which God chose to heal his people, not unlike a sacrament. God continues to use means by which he chooses to save. He saves his people through the waters of holy baptism. Jesus instituted the ministry and establishes churches so that you can hear the saving word of Christ and hear with your own ears the absolution, the forgiveness, the pronouncement of the forgiveness of sins. He gives you the opportunity to receive with your own mouth the very body and the true blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for your forgiveness. These are means by which he saves. Sadly, Christians in many denominations object to what I just told you, saying that baptism doesn't save, the absolution has no power, and the Lord's Supper does not forgive because the only way you can receive those things is by faith, not by these external actions, these outward motions as they claim that they would be not through baptism, the absolution, or communion. But they are objecting to what God instituted and what God himself says that they are. It would have been absurd for the Israelites to reject what God had instituted, saying, well, I've been bit by a bronze, I've been bit by a serpent, so I'm not going to look at the bronze serpent after being bitten because I'm not saved by looking at something that Moses created. Instead, I'm only saved by faith. And then beg God to heal him and heal himself in some other way than the way that God has said that he would offer it. Jesus offers forgiveness through the sacraments. As it is written, baptism now saves you and do this for the forgiveness of sins in the Lord's Supper. Years later, though, the Israelites began to worship the bronze serpent by making offerings to it. They turned what God had designed as a gift into an idol. And so the good king Hezekiah destroyed the bronze serpent, who had done so about 700 years after it was made. Today, people have turned the sacraments into idols, claiming baptism is their commitment or that, or, that, or, or that the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice offered by the priest in order for the people to win the favor of God. Early in his ministry, Jesus spoke of the bronze serpent, saying, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What Jesus was doing here is he was teaching that the bronze serpent foreshadowed his own crucifixion, a type of Christ. And this gets us to an important reality. God did something kind of strange out there in the wilderness, saving his people by having them look at a bronze snake after they are bitten by a live snake. Who'd want to look at a bronze snake after they've been bit by a live snake? You would think the grace of God would be offered in some other way, not through a snake, but through another image. Because a snake is an image of death. But God chose to bring life through it. 
that was God's design. In the same way, you would also think that since a man brought sin into the world, God would not use a man to take away the sin of the world. But yet that is exactly what God had chosen to do by sending his only begotten son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, into this world, taking on human flesh, becoming fully human yet without sin. And then Jesus is lifted up on the cross where he dies to pay for the sins of the world. Many are scandalized by the cross, especially the crucifix. Seeing Jesus on the cross appears to be a symbol of death. But instead, it is the way by which Jesus brings life through his own crucifixion. For the sinless Son of God is lifted up on the cross to save mankind. He serves as our substitute. He atones for the sins of the entire world as he bears the sin of the world in his body and sheds his innocent blood as the perfect payment for our sin and the sin of the entire world. This all happens because he was led willingly as a lamb to the slaughter and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was held accountable for all that we have done wrong, for all of our sin. That is, our sin was imputed to him, meaning it was credited or reckoned as him having done it. And because he has taken our sin away, the very righteousness of Christ is now imputed to us by faith, that is, the Father views us as being credited or reckoned with the very righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. That when the Father looks down on us who cling to our Savior in faith, he sees us not as the sinner that we are, but he sees us as bearing the very righteousness of Christ, for we have been holied and made righteous or declared righteous by our Savior. That is the blessing that we have in Christ. It draws us to him so that we trust in him. We can then pray to him, knowing that he will hear each and every prayer that we bring to him. That no prayer is too insignificant, no matter is too small, and that God will certainly delight in our prayers and answer them according to his good and gracious will. The scriptures teach us to pray without ceasing. The scriptures teach us to pray for all people and for all needs. And so let us do so when we rise up and when we lie down, before and after eating, and in all occasions of life. For we have much to ask, and we have even more to be thankful for. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen. Mm -hmm.